iPad. <laughs> All right, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to Romans chapter 12. We are restarting our Roman series after a break thing since, I think, May. And uh, we hope to finish the book of Romans this year, but it is 2020, so who knows? But that's the hope and the dream, that we will finish this book by the end of December. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 today, and there's plenty in there to hold our attention and feed our souls. So let's jump right into the text, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'll read that and then pray. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. <clears throat> I love, Lord, that you hold out for us things that are good and acceptable and perfect. You love us and you want the best for us. And there is a way in which we put ourselves in the flow of all those good things that we just heard about. And so, Lord, would you open that way up to us again this morning? Reveal to us your goodness and your will, which is good, and especially the mercies that give us appreciation for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not too much to say that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a summary of the Christian life. That is, they describe the essence of what it looks like or the shape of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul makes an appeal to brothers, so he's talking to believers in Jesus, he's talking to the church that is in Rome, and he wants them to live a certain way, and, and he summarizes that way in two statements. Verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So this is the doing and the not doing of the Christian life, which is in summary form, and then it gets explored in great detail for the rest of the book of Romans. This is sort of the entry, the summary, the outline, if you will. And then a lot of details are going to be coming down the road here for the rest of the book. But this is the doing and the not doing of the Christian life, these two statements. And then underneath this activity is the motivation for it. Why, why should I live this way? Well, he says it's because of the mercies of God. I, I appeal to you based on the mercies. So whatever those are, that's the fuel for living the Christian life, of presenting your bodies as living sacrifices not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. So that's where we're going. This, that's the summary of the Christian life. You might think of this next 35 minutes as a retreat of sorts, where we pull away from the noise and the demands of our daily lives to get perspective. I took a two-day personal retreat this week, which I have found to be necessary, and I feel it when I don't. 
because you have to sometimes pull away from all the busyness and the noise of life so that you can try to remember what's it all about, what's most important. And so I did that for two days this week. We all need to to do that in a world where everybody wants your attention, your time, your money, your vote. We need to pull away and ask ourselves, what is life really all about? Well, Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us what it is for the believer in Jesus. So let's find out what it has to say. Let's start with the motivation. Why should you live in a certain way that Paul's going to tell us about? What would motivate you to do all the things that we're going to read in Romans 12 to 16? Well, here it is. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, I'm going to tell you about a serious commitment to Jesus that can rightly be described as a living sacrifice, which is something that's going to affect your whole life. It's going to affect everything about you. But there's no way you'll be able to do it unless it springs out of your grateful embrace of the mercies of God. Only the consideration of those things will keep you going on this path. So what are these mercies of God? Well, they're the things that Paul has been talking about in chapters 1 through 11. Those 11 chapters say almost nothing about what you are supposed to do. There's a couple of exhortations in chapter 6, a couple more in chapter 11, but mainly for 11 chapters, all we know is what God has already done for the believer in Jesus Christ. It's the recounting of how God has taken pity on you in your desperate situation and has come to your rescue. And the heading over those whole 11 chapters is the mercies of God. It's the remembrance of these things that fuel the Christian life. So let me recount these mercies for you. Let's take a very brief tour of what's in these 11 chapters. They start with the realization that before God came to our rescue, here are things that were true about us. From chapter 1, we did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. We were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We were enslaved to sin. From chapter 6, we were enemies of God. From chapter 5, and because of our hard and impenitent heart, we were storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Chapter 2. That description is the starting point for each and every one of us. We must own that description as accurate about us, or else there will be no appreciation for the mercies of God. Because everything that follows, the whole account of God sending Jesus into the world to save sinners, assumes this description. 
It assumes our sin and our guilt. It assumes that we are not just innocent victims in a cruel world. It assumes that we are perpetrators of evil who deserve God's righteous judgment for our sins. So mercy, by definition, is undeserved. It is God's favor to us when what we deserve is wrath. And so if we don't own that we deserve the wrath, we'll never understand mercy. It won't be mercy. It'll be wages. It will be what we deserve. But we don't deserve it. So we have to start there with the bad news. And Paul spends three chapters about on that bad news. Because without it, you can't appreciate the good news. And the good news is very, very good. (laughs) The good news is that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that we are saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. The good news is that He justified us by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Chapter 3. So that is to say, God sent Jesus to atone for our sins, to become the propitiation, the sacrifice that makes God favorable to us by removing the hostility. On the cross, Jesus redeemed us meaning He paid the penalty that our sins deserve. He took on Himself our guilt and our punishment so that we could go free. And God's gift to us, which is received by faith in Jesus, is that He justifies us. He declares us righteous in His sight. He counts us blameless. He gives us the very record of Jesus' spotless life. More than that, we're not just justified legally, legally right with God, but there's a relationship that begins. It says we receive adoption as sons and daughters. That's from Romans 8. He makes us family. He makes his home in us by his spirit who dwells in us, chapter 8. And he makes promises to us that our bodies will be redeemed in a resurrection like his. And that He will cause all things to work together for our good. And that we will be glorified with Christ in a renewed world, forever happy. That's all from chapter 8. And then on the other side of this rescue, once we become believers in Christ, we learn that He planned to do this for us from before time. That we are predestined for it chosen by grace, elected to be saved, Romans 8, 30 and 9, 11. And that means we can never lose any of these blessings. They belong to us forever because they were never based on what we do. They were based on God's choosing, His electing love, despite who we are. Those are the mercies of God to all who receive them as a gift through faith in Jesus. So, friends, only gratitude for God for all that He's done can sustain us in the Christian life. 
And that's why Paul is willing to spend 11 out of 16 chapters talking about it. <laughs> if he was just all about, here's what you got to do, everybody, he could start that in chapter 1. But he said, no, I want 11 chapters of what God has done first, and then you're ready to do something, but not until you know the mercies. <laughs> what a great God we have, that he would just, he would sow that into our lives first and make it not about achieving his mercy, but receiving it by faith. You won't love and serve a God that you relate to only as a judge who is ready to punish you every time you break his laws. That's not sustainable. You will only love and serve a God who is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. That's a God who's a delight to obey. And delight is a much more powerful motivator than fear. And the only one that can make the Christian life a joy and not a duty. I learned that from my own experience. Because for the first 15 to 20 years of my Christian life, I did not think that the gospel had any relevance to my life after conversion. I thought, you believe it to get saved, and then you move on to other things. Then you move on to all the doing. Then you do all the stuff that you're supposed to do now, right? Because you're a Christian. And so, in retrospect, it's no surprise that I carried this huge burden of guilt around with me all the time because I never could do all those commands right. There was always sin in them. And I was totally aware of that. I still fell short, so I was angry a lot. And I was discouraged constantly. Why? Because I was trying to obey Romans 12 to 16 without remembering Romans 1 through 11. I forgot about mercy. I forgot about the cross that forgives my sins today and tomorrow. <laughs> it wasn't until Jerry Bridges taught on grace and sanctification from Romans in the pastor's college that that burden was lifted. So if you're feeling unmotivated to obey God, if you don't know why you should do what the Bible commands, if you wonder what the point is, it may be because you're not moved by what Jesus did for you on the cross. You're not moved by the love of it and the freeness of it. Paul would have you go back and think more about the mercies of God. Because only that embrace will sustain a life of doing things for God. We'll come back to that at the end, but let's move on to the appeal. He makes an appeal to live in a certain way. There's a kind of life that flows out of hearts that are filled up by the mercies of God. So let's talk about what that life looks like. First of all, it means you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We'll read the whole sentence. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what is a living sacrifice? That's language from the temple worship of the Old Testament. A person came to the temple with an animal, 
which would be killed or sacrificed as an offering to God. That offering could be for one of two reasons. It could be to atone for your sins. It was a sin offering. Or it could be an act of complete devotion to God, a whole burnt offering where it's not for your sin, it's just an expression of, I love you, God. You are my God. I give myself to you. It's the whole burnt offering. It's, you take it all. Those are two kinds of offerings that we would learn about in the Old Testament. So which one, which sacrifice is Paul referring to when he says it's a living sacrifice? Well, it's not a sacrifice for sin, for sure, because Hebrews 10.10 tells us we have been sanctified or set apart for God as his own. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we don't need to atone for our sins for our sins by how we live because Jesus death atoned for every wrong thing we've ever done or every wrong thing we'll ever do once for all one sacrifice for sin. So it's not that kind of sacrifice it's not atonement. So it must be the other one and it is the other one. It's the second kind. It's an offering of ourselves to God in complete devotion. Like the whole burnt offering, Lord, I offer you everything. I offer you my life, all that I am. And it's a living sacrifice, which means it's not a one-and-done event, but it's a continual renewal of our devotion to God, day after day, situation after situation, constantly, daily, hourly. What the living sacrifice amounts to is continually seeking to do what pleases God. Because this living sacrifice is described as holy and acceptable to God. That word acceptable doesn't really capture the fullness of the Greek word behind it. Pleasing is, is a better word. Holy and pleasing to God. It means in your devotion to God, you're seeking to do what gives Him pleasure, what, what He finds satisfaction in. And what He takes satisfaction in is when we obey Him, when we live the way that Romans 12 through 16 will lay out for us. Now, here's why we need to remember the mercies of God in order to do that and not make it burdensome. Because if you think that God is never pleased with you, unless you're obeying Him perfectly, then you will never be at rest. <laughs> because none of us is going to love God and love our neighbor the way we should. If God can only get pleasure from us when we are doing everything well, then He's never going to be pleased because sin stains everything that we do. There's always something in it that's not right. So your attempts to please God in all things, they have to take place in the awareness that God is already pleased with you at a fundamental level, an unchangeable level, because you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. God sees you as blameless in Christ. And God said to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So if you are in the son, then God says the same to you, with you I am well pleased. 
He does not think of us apart from being in Christ. So we aren't trying to achieve that by our living sacrifice. Rather, it's out of God's full acceptance as our loving and merciful Father that we want to please Him. It's like the little girl who comes home from second grade from her art class, and she says, Daddy, look what I made for you. And she gives you this little sun catcher to put in in Dad's office window, and it's in the shape of a horsey. Did she make that because she was afraid Dad wouldn't love her if she didn't do it? No. She did it because she loves her Daddy, and she wanted to do something that pleases him. That's the tone of the living sacrifice. It does involve sacrifice, make no mistake. Jesus spoke of it as taking up your cross and denying yourself. It sometimes hurts to obey God. It is painful to follow Jesus. It often means you will need to deny yourself things. It means you will be persecuted in this world as he was, but... It's a sacrifice that's motivated by love for God, by gratitude for all of His mercies to us in Jesus. And that's what makes it doable. Because again, delight, you can go on and on and on doing what you delight in. Doing things out of fear, you can do that for a little while, but eventually you just get hardened. You get tired. You just stop. I can't do this anymore. But delight keeps you going. Delight makes you a living sacrifice, make you a living sacrifice. Now, Paul describes it as your spiritual worship. And again, the full meaning of the Greek doesn't come through in that word spiritual. It's really more translated reasonable or logical. It makes sense to do this, to be a living sacrifice in view of the mercies of God. To obey God, even when it hurts, is reasonable. Uh, In the remembrance of Jesus shedding his blood for you, it makes sense that you would want to return your devotion back to him. It's the same kind of thing that happens when people go to great lengths to honor World War II veterans. I have an uncle who served in the Pacific, and he's 94 now, still hanging on. Um, But he's one of these guys who has been been given an honor flight to Washington, D.C., so there's a whole organization called the Honor Flight Network, and that's what their mission is. They, they fly living World War II vets to Washington, D.C., take them to the monuments, the memorials, take care of all the travel arrangements, all the meals. They make sure that they're greeted in the airports. They make sure that they're showed respect. And there, no, there are no paid staff. It is all volunteers who do this. Why do they do it? Because they want to honor the heroes who fought for our freedom, who made great sacrifices for us. Their dedication to these guys makes sense because of their respect for what they've done. So how much more is it the case with serving Christ, who is the true hero and the Savior of our souls? To return devotion to Him who suffered the wrath of God in our place is a reasonable thing to do. It makes sense. What doesn't make sense is if we live like he doesn't matter. 
That's unreasonable. If we live that way, it isn't because Jesus isn't worthy of it. It's only because we haven't fully understood the mercies of God. It hasn't affected us deeply enough. And that leads to the second part of Paul's appeal to live in a certain way, which is to be transformed, not conformed. Verse 2 again says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this isn't really a separate subject from verse 1. This is something of a restatement of what it takes to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you're going to please God in all things, then it's going to mean not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by a renewed mind. So what does this mean? Let's start with a negative statement about do not be conformed. Conformed. It means to form according to a pattern or a mold. So you think of Play-Doh being formed into a little doggy by, by, the, by the boy, you know. And he makes that little shape. Or, or he takes a big wad of it and he puts it in one of those presses and he squishes it through the little star-shaped opening. And it comes out, right? It's been pressed into a shape. That's what conform is. And I think we know what this looks like in the world because Paul, Paul assumes the world will want you to conform. The world puts pressure on you to think a certain way, do certain things, take a certain trajectory in life. The world wants you to be in a certain kind of shape. And Paul says, no, don't let it do that. And we know what this looks like. You think, you think of uh, high-pressure sales tactics, right? There's a force behind that, right? What, the salesperson works very hard to make you buy the most expensive refrigerator uh, or the most expensive car or whatever, right? He wants you to think that the most expensive one is the one that you can't live without. You can't be happy without this thing. You got to have it. So in reality, he's not just selling you a refrigerator. He's selling you a worldview. He's selling you a way of thinking. He's defining for you where happiness is found. And if I adopt his view and I buy that fridge that I know I can't afford, I've been conformed. I've been shaped into the mold that he wanted. Paul says the world wants you to conform and you're to resist that. And that takes on much more urgency when the way of thinking that's being pressed on us is contrary to the truth of God. For example, the worldview that's behind much of the current discourse on social justice is called critical theory. It's taught in universities. Critical theory takes time to explain, but one feature of it is this. The problems in society are never due to the individual sinful actions of people. They're only due to the unjust social structures and systems. So it's all about who has the power. The problem is those who are in power. The solution is to take away their power. And the goal is liberation from power. Or better yet, to be empowered so that you are over your oppressors, whoever you think they are. Now I think we can agree that power is often abused. And that's a problem. And there are unjust social structures 
But what I've just described is a worldview that is in conflict with the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview starts with a creator God to whom we are accountable, one who has all power. And it says that the problem is not power, but our sin. And it says that the solution is not taking away power, but it is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And it says the goal is a renewed humanity that is devoted to God. Critical theory is an alternative gospel that tries to solve our problems without God. And that is behind many of the best-selling books that are out there right now on social justice. To buy into that is to be conformed to the world. Paul says, don't do it. Don't allow yourself to be pressed into that way of thinking. And that applies to a host of other beliefs as well that the world wants to press on you. Beliefs about gender identity and gender roles, about sexuality and marriage, about personal fulfillment and personal freedoms, and especially about beliefs, whether or not there is a God and what kind of a God he is or she or whoever it is. The world is not neutral about these things. There will be pressure to conform, but the reality is the Christian life is often incompatible with the world. That's why it's spoken of as light in darkness. They're two different things. That's why Jesus, the perfect man, came into the world as light and he was rejected. There's some incompatibility with the mind of the world and the mind of God. And so we are going to run into things that we cannot conform to. But that leads to the positive statement about what we are to do, which is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We get the word metamorphosis from the Greek word behind transformed. Metamorphosis, like a larva turning into a butterfly. It's about a changed life that comes from a changed mind, a renewed mind. It's about resurrection life. The life of Christ lived out in us by the Spirit. It's different from who you were as a non-Christian, and it's going to be different from the non-believing world around you because it's about being conformed to the thoughts and the actions and the character of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the only other time that Paul uses this word transformed. He uses it in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where he says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. To be transformed is to be shaped into the character of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, which reaches its ultimate metamorphosis, in the resurrection, in a glorified body like what Christ has. That is a much more beautiful metamorphosis than any larva turning into a butterfly, as great as that is. But notice this transformation. It comes by means. It comes through the renewal of our minds. So this is the proactive thing we do to keep from being conformed to the world and to be transformed into the image of Christ. It's about soaking your mind in the mercies of God. 
It's about seeing everything through the lens of the salvation story of the merciful God who sent Jesus to rescue us from sin and the glories that are promised to those who put their trust in him. It's about having the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as Paul said in Colossians 3.16. It's about letting the word of God become the, the governing influence over our thinking about everything. The person whose mind is renewed that way can spot the counterfeit hopes that are out there, the twisted things, and avoid embracing them. God's word becomes this grid by which you assess everything. So it will affect how you think about politics. It will affect how you parent. It will affect your work ethic. It will affect everything about you because an immersion into the mercies of God makes you jealous to please God in everything and not let the world steer you off that course. Renewing your mind in God's Word will also make you discerning. Paul says you will discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That means you'll be able to recognize and put into practice God's will in the many different situations that you're going to find yourself. And that is the best kind of life that we can live because God's will is good and acceptable, actually pleasing, same word, and perfect. <laughs> good, acceptable, and perfect. Devoting our lives to pleasing God as a living sacrifice is good for us. It's the pursuit of good, pleasing, and perfect things. And isn't that the hope of every human heart? Isn't that what we all want? We want good, we want pleasing, we want perfect. And God says, yeah, and I'll give it to you as you give yourselves as a living sacrifice. That's the way you're going to really experience it. So what's the takeaway from all this? Let me just close with this. The sum of the Christian life is living to please God out of gratitude for all that He's done for us in Christ. There it is. The sum of the Christian life is living to please God out of gratitude for all He has done for us in Christ. The details will follow, 12 through 16. But there's the outline. That's the shape of it. So our life only flourishes if it springs from this continual awareness of the mercies. It thrives when our minds are renewed by what God has done for us. Without that, it becomes just obligation. It becomes a rules to follow. It becomes behaviors by which we are always graded. And there's no joy in that. And there's also no transformation in that. Maybe you feel like that's where you're at today in your Christian life. Going through the motions, doing what you're supposed to do, but not, without a lot of, not with a lot of affection for God. Or maybe you're aware that your life isn't really a living sacrifice, that you can go for a long time without intentionally trying to please God, that you do mostly what pleases yourself. Whether that's because of our sins or because of stages in life, that can happen to any of us. So what do you do? Well, you renew your mind in the good news of the gospel. 
You go back to the scriptures and you see Christ there giving himself for you, loving you, welcoming you to God, promising never to leave you or forsake you. Listen to it on, the Bible, on, on your Bible app. I've been using that Dwell app. And just let, it, just let it go through your head. Wash yourself with the water of the Word. <laughs> and you don't know what God's using that for. Go, go to books and sermons that have fed your soul in the past and hear them again or read it again. Take a few hours to pull away and remember the promises of God. Take, carve out those two hours. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna make my soul happy in God. That's my goal. Like George Mueller said, he did for decades. Every day, get up. That's my goal. Make my soul happy in God before I do anything else. You may or may not get to happiness, but at least get your bearings. <laughs> at least look up above the trees and go. Oh yeah, this is where I am. <laughs> we got to renew our mind that way. Renew them in the mercies of God, the good news of the gospel. And then whether slowly or quickly, transformation will ultimately follow. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that your will is good and acceptable, pleasing and perfect. And you call us into it. You call us to follow that trail. You intend to satisfy every longing in our hearts as we give ourselves to you in gratitude for Jesus. So we ask your help. We ask you to do this by the Spirit. And we thank you that you're already working in that. Anyone, Lord, who felt that conviction, I just pray that they don't fall into judgment and condemnation and all that, if they're yours, let them feel your pleasure. Your pleasure because they're in Christ. Let them see your smile. Let them get encouragement. None of this doing is going to be about getting you to accept us. That's already happened. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.